All right, it's springtime, and you know what that means. It means summer is right around the corner, and you don't want to be spending these beautiful days inside cooking and chopping vegetables. No, you want to be outside enjoying fresh spring air, and you can eat stress-free this spring with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Because every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, it's dietitian approved and ready-to-eat in what? Two minutes. You choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including calorie smart, keto, protein plus, vegan, veggie. Also discover more than 60 add-ons every week, like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks, and beverages to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. I love Factor Meals. They're absolutely delicious. I don't have to worry about it. They're just in my fridge. Factor is your solution for fast, premium meals without the need for cooking. Head to factormeals.com slash queerthemusic50 and use code queerthemusic50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome back to Queer the Music, the podcast from Mercury Studios that uncovers the LGBTQ plus anthems that have dominated dance floors and shaped queer lives. I'm Jake Shears, your host and guide, and in this episode, I'm chatting with American singer-songwriter and multi-instrumentalist Michaela Strauss, better known by their stage name, King Princess. Michaela was literally born into music, spending much of their childhood hanging out at their dad's Brooklyn recording studio, learning bass, guitar, piano, drums, and music production. They turned down an offer of a recording contract at 11 years old, finally signing with Mark Ronson's Z-League label at 19. Since then, their unapologetic, overtly queer lyrics and gender-ambiguous style has established them as a significant new voice. They have two studio albums and an EP to their name, which we will talk about later. But first, I wanted to ask Michaela about their platinum certified debut single, 1950, which has had 21 million views on YouTube and has been streamed an incredible 550 million times on Spotify. I hate it when dudes try to chase me. But I love it when you try to save me, cause I'm just a lady. I love it when we play 1950 It's so cold, it just stays about to kill me I'm surprised when you kiss me So tell me why my guys look like you And tell me why it's wrong Away. I will keep away. 
Michaela, can you tell me about when you wrote 1950? I know it came from the shower initially. It was shower. Can we talk about for a second what an underrated place the shower is for writing? It's for real. It's like a moment of peace in your day. And I, I remember I was in my, I was in my dorm in college and it was eight girls, but it was two to each room. And I had this like insane roommate. I can't even get it. She was so iconic. But she was actually out of the room and my other roommate was sitting in my bedroom area and I like ran out of the shower like ass naked and I was like, I have a chorus. And then she, I didn't have my phone so she handed me her phone and I, somewhere on her phone is like the original voice memo for like 1950, just the chorus. And at the time, did you link it to The Price of Salt? I mean, it's a very tender song. It's full of longing and unrequited love. And you've said that it was inspired by a Patricia Highsmith novel who's yeah. this incredible lesbian, often thriller writer, wrote The Price of Salt, which listeners might know was adapted into the movie Carol. Were you reading that book at the time? I, that book was like my lesbian Bible in high school because I, I think people like fanaticized the idea that I was like creating this literary parallel to this book. And I think the reality was that you know, I went to a school that was great and we, we read a lot of beautiful books. Not a lot were gay. I was lonely and young and like, you know, I felt this like need to educate myself in gay storytelling because I wasn't getting it in school. And there just wasn't like a lot of, you know, content for me. So I went on this kind of binge of reading gay books, watching gay movies, and I would kind of like make my own curriculum outside of school. That made me feel less alone and also connected me to queerness and, and our history. Because there is a huge wealth of literature and movies dating back way the fuck. But this, this book, The Price of Salt, happened to be like the first book of its kind to make it to hardcover which in 1953 was like, you know, you, you would have bought that book at the supermarket. Yeah, such a brave book. Very brave. So I remember reading it in, in high school and just like, it's it destroying me. Like it destroyed me. It is, it is a heartbreaking and also optimistic story about queerness. It just stuck with me. And then to think about how we still do those things now, we still code ourselves in public. And we're kind of horny for it because it's what we know as queer people. Like there is kind of a horniness. It's sexy. It's sexy to like cosplay as like. Yeah, well also because those fantasies that you have that are never going to come to fruition, you know, when you're a teenager and whatnot because you're still closeted or whatever, that ends up sort of playing into your sexuality later in yeah. life. God knows it has mine. I mean, like, I, like, can't get off to anything except for, like, a sad lesbian movie where, like, <laughs> one chick's, like, a chimney sweep and, like, the other one's a debutante and they don't touch for the first two and a half hours and then their fingers touch briefly and they're, like, jizzing and then two and a half hours through there's, like, an insane sex scene that's, like, so violent and, like, face-sitting and just, yeah. So, like, that's all I can get off to because I feel like that's what I know. But, yeah, so anyway, this the yeah, I wrote the song and I was, like, just thinking about how sad it is that we are horny for kind of our own oppression as queer people. Yes. And that we are seasoned to think it's sexy and right to feel like we should be hidden. And I was having a lot of those feelings when I was writing that first EP. 
It's something that people don't talk about that much. I was in a relationship with somebody, you know, when I was young who was coming to terms with their sexuality. I had already come to terms with mine. It was excruciating. How old were you? 15. And it was a, it was a significant, major, real relationship. I knew who I was. And I don't think a lot of other people had the privilege of knowing that so young. So I was dealing with having these huge, humongous feelings and also being with somebody who wasn't comfortable feeling them. And that's scary. It also matures you, though. I feel like when you're 15 and you do know who you are at that time, you become sort of wiser than your years in a certain way. And I feel like I was like deeply, deeply educating myself in the queer historical experience because I just was so lonely that I needed something, you know, because there just wasn't other people that were as confident in their sexuality as I was around me. Yeah, so that's where that song came from. And then it, it became, you know, this whole, like, I haven't read a book in, like, five years. So, like, it's kind of awkward what? that, like, I used to read so much. So I was going to ask you, like, how deep is your relationship with other works of art or books? And how does that inform your songwriting now? Are there any other instances where, like, a piece has informed a song? A lot of the books that I read during that time I go back to and I, like, will take a passage from and really think about it. Like, when I was writing Sex Shop, I thought about The Well of Loneliness Uh, which is Radcliffe Hall. It's one of the first, I think, I mean, I don't know, I can't speak if it's like the first, the first, but it's fully includes a gender, queer, non-binary main character. It's old as fuck. And they're talking about somebody like wearing clothes that assign them to the gender they feel comfortable with, you know, way before there was language to define this. So I, I go back and I look, but like, no, I need to start reading again, like desperately. It's I watch good. a lot of movies. That can also feed the feed the creative soul. Books are so great just because there's, you know, well, it it's, forces it's you to imagine. Words. It forces you to be visual in your in your head, and I think that is super helpful for songwriting. I think you'll read again. So this song it connected with you deeply with what was going on in your life at a, at the time. So can you tell me how old were you when you wrote 1950? I was um, 17. You wrote this when you were 17. Jeez. Your freshman year of college. Can you talk to me about the journey of you recording that into your friend's phone and getting into the studio? I know you basically grew up in the studio. Your dad was a recording engineer. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So like when I was 16, there was a guy who would record at my dad's studio all through my childhood. He was like an older brother figure, you know, he was almost like a mentor and um, he had man- these two managers that he started working with. And so he was like, you should meet them. And I met them and pretty much decided like, okay, I'm going to try to get into USC. And if I do, I'll do a year of college, but I'll move to LA and I'll just start. Cause I'd been doing session work since I was a little kid, just because I was like all over the city, just anyone who would like be in a room with me and record something, I, I would be there. And I didn't want to record with my dad because what kid wants to like hang out with their parents. So when I moved to LA immediately, it was like, okay, I'm in college. It's time to start like taking sessions. And I, within like the first couple weeks met Mike Malachikoff, who's still my engineer and co-producer to this day. And he's amazing and wonderful. And I met Nick Long, who's still my songwriting partner. And we wrote 1950 together. 
I had a lot of big feelings and I felt like it was time to like go in the studio and start actually making something that I'd want to put out into the world instead of just making stuff to practice. Within the first week or two of being out there, 1950 was pretty much done. I recorded a demo of it in my dorm. All of the kind of like drum programming I started in my dorm myself. And then I brought- What were you using? Ableton. Yeah. Um, and a lot of samples, just sample packs. I'd get samples from like, a kid down the hall was in the music program. Oh, I have this sample thing. You would love these. And oh, I have these. I have these Lindrums. I have these. So people would just like share. Yeah. And so, yeah, no, I just like demoed it out. And then I went to the studio and pretty much the version that's out is the version we did that day. And listening to the rest of your work, does it feel like a different person that wrote that song? I don't. I, th I think that I love that song and I think it's evolved like by playing it live and just I, I don't really get tired of it, to be honest. It's, I, I love that song. I'm so proud of it. I feel sad for myself at that time because I was so sad and I could hear it. And I was sad and on drugs. So like I'm like... I, I hear that when I listen to that EP and that song, and I'm like, oh, honey. Yeah. You can hear it actually in the recording. You can hear it in your voice. Yeah. I'm congested from the cocaine. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I do. I really, I love, I love that song. I like think a lot about it. And I mean, it's like, I don't know. Every time I play it, there's like somebody crying and like singing it back to me live. And it, just, it doesn't really get better than that. You know what I mean? Like, it, it just makes me happy to know that people felt less alone listening to it. Yeah. And still do. Yeah. You have said a couple really interesting things to me about just being a queer artist. I walk the line with this show because it's like I have always had a chip on my shoulder about being considered a queer artist. Does it have anything to do with the music? Is there such a thing as queer music? I don't know. I mean, art is gay <laughs> in general. Yeah. I mean, art is the gayest thing you could do. To think that your expression is so important that it needs to be put out in the world is very gay. You know, for me, it's like I get asked this question, like, in interviews where it's like, how does being queer affect your music? And I'm like, well, how does it, how does being straight affect your music? How does it not? How does who you want to fuck not affect everything you do? You know what I mean? To some degree. Or like the lens you look, you look at the world through, of course it's going to affect my music. But there wasn't another option. It's not like I could just not make queer music. I'm a queer person. It, it's queer because I'm queer. And you've got to be yourself. And I've got to be myself. It's, you know, there isn't, you know, an AI robot writing this music for me. It's like, you know, my experience. And sometimes it gets, it gets told to me as though it's like too specific. And I'm like, I, it's, I don't care. It's my music. You said that you could be in danger of being othered to the point of being a subgenre before you get there. We are a subgenre before we get there. And now it's even worse because we're like, you can see how hungry kids are for queerness and representation in, in the industry. And we're like, it's starting to become more and more. But like every time there's like a queer pop playlist, I'm like, why? Like, why are you doing this? You cannot group people together sonically based on who they have sex with. It does not make sense. You just can't put two people next to each other and go, okay, well, they both munch box, so this music must be the same. It's like, it's not. <laughs> it has nothing to do necessarily with the sound of something. 
No, but what is important is that people have access and know where to find things that they may connect to. So that's, it's a fine line. Because now somebody who is young and figuring themselves out can go on Spotify and be like, okay, well, there's, here's a queer playlist. Maybe I'll connect to one of these artists. That's awesome. But for the artists themselves, you're like, okay, well, I'd love for you to promote me outside of June. <laughs> that oh my would be, God, tell That would be wonderful. It. Like if you could give a shit about my music in July. Yeah. <laughs> it's crazy the amount of incoming stuff for Pride Month. Yeah. It's almost, it's borderline insulting I don't want to complain. I mean, it's not, it's not a complaint. You can thing. complain. I mean, it's like I'll complain about it. Anything that's pro the cause of just being more gay and more queer, because it's just so boring to hear about like straight people all the time. It's just like, <laughs> no more. Yeah. We're good. Yeah. It's enough. So I'm here for the cause. I just, I get a little, in my free time, I get a little like mad about the way that we get kind of put into these categories that other us, it almost makes it impossible for us to be mainstream. And being mainstream is really cool. Like it's, we need it. I've always had a big chip on my shoulder about it, especially back in the day. I mean, you and I are 20 years apart, exactly. Which is a trip to think about. Sitting here on the sofa with you. like I'm I'm 12 years old. (laughs) I wish. But properly another two decades now after. Isn't, doesn't of, it feel good what? to know that it still sucks to be a gay artist? <laughs> it's not nice to know. Would you go to another time? Is there any other time? In this weird fucked up way? Yeah, I would love to know what it was like in like the early 50s New York City speakeasy lesbian bar culture. Do you feel a separation now between... If you look now at a 15-year-old, and I'm sure there's lots of 15-year-olds coming to your shows. Yes. How do you feel about that gap? Well, first of all, they're like, I loved you in middle school. And I'm like, oh, no, I'm getting old. (laughs) Uh, No, I mean, I do feel a gap because when I look at my sister, my sister is 16 years old, and I look at her and her friends, and it's just like, ain't no thing. I mean, it's New York City, but it's like, all her friends are queer. They're not bullied for it. It's chill. I'm sure they have their own internal struggles, as we all do. But the way it's been described to me and what I've seen is that it is just completely way more acceptable. Do you think that's going to dilute queer culture? It's a tough question because yes, but I like, isn't that kind of fucked up that we feel that way because we're used to being special? I mean, I, I look at certain things and I'm like, oh my God, you're just selling us out. I'll see a music video and be like, you're giving away our secrets. I, yes, I feel that way, but I'm not supposed to say things like that. I'm supposed to be like, no, I love everyone. We're all part of a big, happy family. But no, of course I feel like I'm like, because it's like now it's loose, right? It's like now you can also be a, a gay imposter, like you can be somebody who queer baits effectively and people, especially men who do it, are just simply not called out for it. Whereas like within our community, you'll have queer people yelling at each other on Twitter about how they describe their experience versus how this person thinks it's not right to describe your experience this way or kind of these like micro minutia really just unimportant issues when you have fully people pretending to be gay (laughs) yeah and you're like whoa like oh my god you're not gay you've just pretended and it worked or just being very ambiguous and being like well i could be and it's like no you couldn't 
I think Diplo just said like, yeah, maybe I've, what did he say recently? He was like, I just saw an article about Diplo being our new queer icon. What did he say? He was like, it's not that I haven't sucked a dick before. I've sucked a dick before. I'm not straight, but I've definitely sucked a dick. I've never munched a box. Ever? No. I'm. Is tonight the night? (laughs) I'm down. I'm down. You are not down. (laughs) It would have to be. It would have to be in a three-way with a with another guy with the right guy. I would. What do you mean with the right guy? I eat a pussy. What what guy? Don't get nervous. I'm clutching my pearls now. No, the situation would be. It would be like a super hot couple. It's got to happen someday. I don't know if it's if if it does for you. You don't need to eat pussy. I'm. You know. It's wonderful. I'm lucky just getting laid these days any old way, <laughs> to be honest. You know, me too. Um, when you're writing songs and being as vulnerable as you are, is it always you? I don't do well with the fictions. I want to get better at it. You know, I see like I have friends like they just use more analogy, allegory, metaphor. And I just am more conversational with my writing. And I would love to get to a place where I can bring like narrative and kind of coded language more into my music because I feel like I'm very like like this is what the song's about but no I think there's like moments of protection that I like use you know like when you're writing music I feel like there's songs that are just like pouring your heart out and there's songs that are like you're you're writing it to get to a better place and maybe you're writing it because you need to find strength within writing it so sometimes I write optimistically like I'm writing about where I want to be instead of where I'm at. <laughs> How would you say your writing has changed and what have you learned since you wrote 1950? I learned that I do like to smoke weed when I write. Really? Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I like to smoke weed and I like to just like, I need to be in an environment where I'm around people who say yes. Not yes men, but like people who are encouraging and fucking like, I don't do well with the like, we could beat that. I can't stand it. Is it is so annoying I don't to me. like it either. I'm like, shut the fuck up. When you're writing with people and it's just like you feel like there's hurdles being put up. Like it's it's so important to Yeah. I mean, open. Nick, Nick will drive me crazy because he'll be like, we could do better. Like this melody, we just need to, con- you know, fit things better here. And like it drives me fucking nuts, but he's right. But at the same time, there's no wrong answers. If it comes from my brain, I need to accept that it's right. Yeah. And that's so hard to do, especially when you've been signed to a label where you've in the past been in situations like everybody who's ever been signed to a label where you think you've just fucking nailed it. Like you just wrote a, your, your arc de triomphe of a song and you send it and they're just like, hate it. The devastation that I yeah. felt from like, it, it's not their fault. It's just, you know, you can't expect everyone to fucking love your art the way you do. And that can be devastating. And I think for many like years I like was in this place where I was like, nothing's ever good enough. And I wrote 1950 at 17 and it blew up. Mm. completely randomly with no marketing, no nothing. How did you handle that success? Not well. I mean, it was like what I was 19. I had some money because I signed a deal. I had access to any drug I wanted. I was horribly depressed. I was not popular growing up. I didn't have a lot of friends. So all of a sudden I had all these friends and I wasn't a great friend in return, and I wasn't great at picking friends. I was miserable. <laughs> I was miserable. How did you sort it out? 
I think I had to do a lot of therapy and go on antidepressants yeah. and really sort out why I want to be a musician because it's addicting. It's like you get a song with some success and you immediately want another one. No, it's like a drug. It's a drug. And if you, if you come from like an addict background, like everyone in my family is an addict. So like I've just got the genes and it's, it's interchangeable. You can, it can be drugs. It can be sex. It can be being famous. It can be anything. So for me, it was like an immediate hit and then chasing that, you know, and also being incredibly ungrateful about it because I was 19 and who is grateful at 19? Just kind of feeling entitled to it. Yeah. Yeah. And I was a dick. I was a horrible dick. And I've really tried to figure out how to not be. Yeah. And it's really hard. There's a lot of work you have to do. It's really hard to not be a bitch. (laughs) But I'm working on it. Yeah. I wish there was a handbook, you know, that they could give artists when things start taking off. Because I think that when you're a certain age, and for me it was like 24 or so, but like I wasn't fully equipped. I mean, I'm still not, but at least now, you know what? Like, I know it's important. And what's important is the people who have supported my music. These fans, these kids, they are everything to me. Like yesterday we did a meetup in Bristol. I picked a park and we, I just showed up to the park. We all sat down and talked. It's like 35 people. We sat, we talked, shared their problems. I shared my problems, took pictures, signed stuff, just hung out. That's amazing. And I was like, that is what's important. I would have never done that at 19 because I didn't know how to accept the fact that people were looking at me and saying, I love you. Like, it was horrifying to me. And now I'm like, I love that and I love you too. Can you talk for a minute about how your your gender identity and being out and gay has affected the way your music is heard? I don't know. It's a tough question. I mean, I think that initially when I was like, I'm non-binary, which I have known before I was gay, like that was just something that was, I mean, I was a, a young child like struggling with like really dreading puberty and really being scared of like developing and as a woman. And I I remember like wanting to identify as male as a kid. So when I said it out loud, you know, obviously I was gay from the jump with my music. It was very obvious that I was gay. All the first articles, gay artist, gay musician, queer, whatever. But then when I said I was non-binary, I felt like for a second the lesbians were like, what the fuck? And then my team was like, well, you really isolated the lesbians. And I'm like, well, how is that possible? Because I am me. And I, I've had a lesbian experience, but I'm also not a girl, you know? So it's like, that was really heartbreaking for a moment. And I felt really sad that I, being myself, something that I thought was very obvious from the jump that I was clearly not a girl even my name, you know, King Princess, it was, it, it was all just signs pointing. And then I felt like the community was like, Ugh. or maybe it was the way that I said it or the way that I talked about it. But now I think more and more people are identifying with like the sapphic lesbian experience as including non-binary people. And now it's like, it's, it's way more normalized, you know, even the pronoun conversation. I mean, it's just like, it doesn't exclude you from being a dyke to be non-binary. And I 
find that interesting, but I also feel a little sad that I had to kind of get the brunt of the initial, well, are you not a lesbian then? And maybe I was also rejecting the title of lesbian because I didn't really identify as a woman, you know? I don't know if that's confusing. That was a tough one for me because I was just like, why is the way I'm identifying affecting anything about this? It's also really interesting what's happened in the last five years. Yeah, and it's from, it's from our own community, too. That's the part. It's like when I see people in our community coming at each other about the way that we identify, I'm kind of like, please stop. Like, there are kids who are unsafe on the street walking to school. There are kids who can't go into the fucking bathroom they want to during school. There are kids who, who are being completely isolated from any means of finding community, you know, in this world. So don't come at each other. I know that comes from a place of hurt, like being sad and being scared and, and having displaced anger. And so the internet is this void that you can just get angry on. It's baked in the cake of the technology. Yeah. And I've had moments on like even my Discord where like I've seen fights emerge or something and I'm like, no, I'll come on. I'll literally log on and be like, no, none of that here. You can fight at your work. You can fight at your school. This community, we're not fighting with each other. You can have discourse. You can have conversations about opinions, but there's no fighting. I don't want King Princess to ever be a place for separation in our community. It's all about unity. There's a lot of toxicity out there. It like, pisses me <laughs> off. Yeah. It pisses me off because I know what it feels like to be angry and young and like want to just yell at somebody. And there's a, it's an outlet that's just made for it. Yeah, and I know? just, you know... But I felt it on both sides. You know, I felt being that angry kid, and I've also been, like, screamed at on the internet. How do you feel about that now? Has that been a hard thing to get used to? My cancellations? Has there been there have been full cancellations? No. I mean, it's like they just, it's like, I mean, I, I find it interesting. <laughs> but that's that what you call them. Yeah, my cancellation. My cancellation. <laughs> I find it interesting that you get a free pass when you're certain people, and then I feel like we're a lot harder on female presenting queer people than we are on gay men or on straight men who present gay for monetary purposes. I think it's a lot easier to come at me. And I've also said some pretty stupid shit before. So that is fair. And like, I get it. But yeah, no, being yelled at on the internet or told that you're shit and you should kill yourself is awful. That's awful. I can take it because I'm just like, but being yelled at by your own community in a way that feels unfair or just mean is heartbreaking. What are some of the other artists in the community that you've been inspired by in the queer world? Like, I love like Perfume Genius. I love Cody. Cody's a huge inspiration to me. Cody Coachella, whose artist name is Shun, who's made some amazing music and yeah. he's also a video director and you've worked with him. And yeah. He's, he's, he's brilliant. More recently, like Ethel Kane, Muna, it's starting to, the list is starting to like really grow, which is cool. But I also love, like, I'm so inspired by like, it's so funny cause it's like the opposite of what I do as an artist, but just like a pop woman, you know, like a straight pop girl. Like I'm such a hag for that. The shares, the Celine's, the, 
the Beyonce's, the Gaga's. That's the gay man in you. It is the gay man <laughs> in me. I just love a pop girl. Yeah. I'm allergic for some reason. I'm the one gay man who just like does the full pop. It's tough for me. I like Kylie. All right, Kylie's my Padam. Kylie's my girl. Padam, Padam. Do you know Peaches at all? She was here on this couch. I just oh. met her recently. She's amazing. Peaches is a huge one for me too, and that was a really special thing. I did like a panel with her, and we talked, and I was just like, "Oh my god, so just so wonderful." Because I remember being in high school, and like now I'm doing that thing where Peaches is like, "Ugh, enough, you were in high school." <laughs> um, but I remember being in high school and sitting with my like my friends, my like little alt you know, friends smoking weed and listening to Peaches. For me, she is, her performance art, the way that she presents herself, her showing her body even. I always found it so beautiful and it's so theater. And theater is a huge, like, I'm a theater nerd. So for, to, to, to talk to her and find out she is too. And she's kind and yeah. And she also got me tickets to see her and also Azalea Banks at 2.30 p.m. on a Saturday. Fabulous. I saw Azalea Banks at 2.30 p.m. on a Saturday in Pasadena. She was incredible. Yeah. She was 45 minutes late. She played four songs. There was no set list. She was just calling them out. Two were acapella. It was one of the best shows of my life. I worked with her when she was like 17. We made a song called Shady Love together. And, uh... She really put me through it for a while, but it's really funny these days, every once in a while, she'll do a tweet saying that she had a dream about me or like, and you've been blessed. Like, I'm like, don't look at it too close. Don't respond. You've don't, been blessed. Don't stare into the void. You've been, uh, you've been marked. No, she's, she's amazing in her way. I, yeah, but I love a problematic queen, you know? It's, yeah. I am too one myself. Yeah, no, Peaches was just that talking to her was so cool. It means so much to me to meet people that I look up to and they're kind. Yeah. It's amazing meeting those people that have inspired you. Oh, you know, it's like one of the best things about doing what we do. And when they're cool. Yeah. But when they're not cool, it's kind of cool too. Because I love like when a pop girl is mean. I'm a fangirl at heart. A meme culture fangirl at heart. Any examples? You don't have to, you don't have to name any names. One time I was in the studio and I was working with my friend Teo and Christina Aguilera was working with Mark Next in the same studio and she walked in and she saw us and she was like, oh. And she walked out and I was like, oh my God, that was Christina Aguilera. And then I walked out to leave because I was like, it's clearly our time to go. She's here. We have to get the fuck out of the studio. It's her time now. And Mark said, did you meet Michaela and Teo? And she goes, yeah, I saw the children. <laughs> that meant a lot to me. In 20 years time, when you're sitting on this end of the couch. And, and there's like a 12 year old. Like, <laughs> there's a 12 year old. Sitting on cyborg, sitting gay on cyborg. Yeah, what do you? Who do you think you're going to be talking to, and what what are your hopes for those kids? My hopes are that whoever is on the other side of this couch is completely unfazed by this idea that their music needs to conform into any box, any genre. That it can be as fucking kooky, crazy, wild as possible, and that it can be successful because those risks and those chances are what make pop music. You know what I mean? Like, pop music is not a genre. Pop music is a movement, and it is defined by the music people like and connect to. And that has no bounds. And that's it. 
like I want that person to be sitting there going, I just don't really listen to people who tell me what the fuck to do, who wear suits and like, you know, handle money all day. Just not interested. Because it's funny. It's like once you start getting into it, it's just the more fingers in the pot, right? Well, it's just like you, the minute you've become marketable, it's like, do that thing again. It's like, what thing? Be 19 and heartbroken and like write a song in the shower? doesn't work like that. I want this next generation of musicians to just feel like they can go fucking buck wild. Go crazy. You know? Make music that isn't boring and standard. You know? There's nothing worse than boring standard music. Agreed. I hate it. Agreed. I want people to feel like they can just be crazy. Yeah. Because I see music that is less and less normal becoming popular and that makes me happy less formulaic new formulas what's next for you i mean what are the what are your sort of fantasies and and visions coming down the road an early death and then like a hologram tour no (laughs) (laughs) no um i've been writing a lot this next thing whatever i end up doing and this next thing's really important because I feel like I'm just like in a completely different phase of my career where I've like let go of a lot of things that I felt like weren't really servicing me and making me sad. And now I feel like I can kind of start over a little bit. I mean, musically, I feel like I'm, I'm having a lot of fun in the studio. Like I'm taking a lot of like what I learned from making Cheap Queen with just how inventive and like crazy and wild I got with like sound design and and production and stuff. I'm taking a lot from that and a lot of the kind of authenticity of Hold On Baby and I'm making something that feels like it's kind of in the middle. Hold On Baby's been such a pleasure to get to know. I love that album. It's it's fucking great. It's really fun. It's fun. and It's just not the fun. Li- it's actually miserable. No, the, the, the lyrics are great. I just, I really, really enjoyed getting to know it. Thank you. I really love that album. It was really hard to make because... I was trying to make something that sonically was just better than anything I've ever made before. And doing that is really hard. The sound design's the best part, I think. It's my favorite part. Yeah, the people I worked on it with were geniuses. And the mixer, Sean Everett, I mean, this guy would be like, he'd fucking call me and he'd be like, so last night I went down a rabbit hole. I'm on version 48 of Too Bad. I think I'm, I've, I've gone into a new nucleus of a new generational time warp and I think I've got it. And he'll play it for me. And I'm like, okay, please go back to version one. And <laughs> we'd like just do this process. But it's so fun when you've got the songs. You know what I mean? It's just like, it's one of my favorite parts of like when you're you like at mixing? that point of making the record. I fucking not hate mi- mixing. Not mixing, but just when you're doing that design, like around the songs that have been written. I think it's my favorite Well, part I'm writing and producing at the same time, which is something that I always kind of like got into trouble for. I feel like people were always like my label and everybody was always like, could you just focus on the songs? And I'm like, no, that's just not me. I I love to write songs and sometimes I do just write songs, but sometimes I struggle to write songs unless I am simultaneously making noise and sound in a studio because that I'm a producer. I identify with that. You know, like I'm like, it's not, I don't, I don't just sit at a piano and then who's going to produce this? Like, that's not how I roll. No, it's impossible for me. I could never just hand someone a, a song or like a cut vocal and be like, yeah, no, it's not possible. And finally, regarding 1950, how do you feel when you sing that song in front of a crowd? What does that song mean to you now? Now I feel like it's like less about me and it's more about the people who are experiencing it. 
when I wrote it and was playing it initially, it was really about like working through the feelings that I felt when I wrote it. Cause I, I toured that EP immediately when it came out. Now I feel like it's like kind of off my chest and I've like given it to the fans and it's just a treat for me to watch them get excited for it. And it's also fun because my band and I, you know, we think of like new ways to make it a special experience because it's always a special moment in the set. And I am like, it, you know, we do this thing now where the, we, you know, we just cut the click at the end and it's just me and a guitar and the audience singing. And it's this moment where we all like kind of share together that it's like, you know, that I, and I thank everybody during the bridge, like, thank you for sticking with me. You know, so it's like, it's a love letter to them now. That's how I feel when I play it. I mean, it's, it's just a reminder that there are people that have been listening to my music for four or five years now and still aren't tired of me. And my gift to them is that song, you know, but I'll, I'll always play that song. Well, I don't think people are ever going to get tired of you. And it's, <laughs> it's such a pleasure just talking to you today. It's been You're going to keep so in the part fun. about how you are going to eat pussy tonight? Definitely. I'm going to hold you to that. You're going to call me in like Got two you. weeks and be like, I fucking hate it. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I did I, it. It was I, awful. I, <laughs> Why would you make me do this? When it happens, I'll let you know. You, you must. When it happens, I will let you know. I'm but excited. thank you so much for coming in today. Thank you. And uh, it's really been a pleasure. I've really enjoyed <laughs> talking to you. You're so funny. And just, I think you're brilliant. Thank you so much. I found Michaela to be so charming and disarming, and this was a really fun interview to do. They just played an intense gig at Coco here in London, and they were definitely still feeling the energy from that night. I loved hearing them talk so warmly about peaches, and if you want more peaches, well, I've got a whole fascinating episode with her, and I highly recommend that you check that out. I'll see you next time for more music from the queer side, but let's go out on a high with King Princess and 1950. I hate it when dudes try to chase me But I love it when you try to save me Cause I'm just a lady I love it when we play 1950 It's so cold it just stays about to kill me I'm surprised when you kiss me So tell me why my guys look like you And tell me why it's wrong So away
Oh, yeah. 